Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Continuing the conversation on role overload, you may have heard the other week from our friend and author Liz O'Donnell talking through the major conflicts and challenges that can be a result of being both a working professional and a daughter caring for aging parents. Today, we're continuing the conversation on the same theme around role overload and role conflict, which as a reminder, those are the feelings of wearing too many hats or trying to be everything to everyone, uh, or that feeling that the roles you're playing are constantly competing. Constantly competing, wherein you can't be a good daughter if you're also a good mother. You can't be a good employee if you're also being a good wife. Exactly. And that's why we're so excited to really hone in today on the conflicts that can emerge for working parents and specifically for working mothers. Today, we are excited to be joined by our incredible friend and author, Tiffany Dufu, who you may know from her amazing book called Drop the Ball. Tiffany Dufu is a catalyst at large in the world of women's leadership. She's the author of Drop the Ball, a memoir and a manifesto that shows women how to cultivate the single skill they really need in order to thrive, the ability to let go. Named to Fast Company's League of Extraordinary Women, Tiffany was a launch team member to Lean In and is chief leadership officer to Levo, one of the fastest growing millennial professional networks. Prior to that, Tiffany served as the president of the White House Project, as a major gifts officer at Simmons College in Boston, and as associate director of development at Seattle Girls School, an institution committed to giving all girls the power to be innovative, confident, critical thinkers. Tiffany, you've long said that your life's work is helping empower women and girls. I'm so excited for you to join us here at Stuff Mom Never Told You, where we share that goal. Oh, that's fabulous. And thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're so happy to have you here, Tiffany. So, Tiffany, you pretty much do it all, (laughs) it sounds like. How did you get into this work? So I, well, first I would say that I do believe that I have it all. Um, and what that means to me is that I have a really healthy partnership and I have kids who are pretty much on track to be conscious global citizens. And I have a career that is really all about my passion and my purpose. And on most days, I'm pretty healthy and fit and joyful. Um, but I don't do it all in order to have it all, um, which is I know that which we're going to talk about. And I got started really because of my relationship with my mom, which I know that we're talking about today. She, you know, found out that she was pregnant with me when she was 19. And she was what I call a non-paid working mom because all moms are working moms. But she um, chose to work inside of the home and she didn't get compensated for her labor. And when my parents got divorced when I was 16, I saw the impact of that decision on my mom's life. She really struggled after the divorce. And so I became quite committed to getting to as many women as possible and really supporting them in understanding that they were the most powerful change agents in their own journey because I saw the challenges that my mom had after the divorce. So that's the root of why I do what I do. I love how you explained that because 
for all the things we want to cover today when it comes to the role conflict that can really be an issue for women who both identify as mothers and as those who are working in the paid labor force, we do not want to wade into the mommy wars, right? We're often sort of pigeonholed as feminists, especially the, the discussion of women and work sometimes leads us down that road to feeling like it's mothers who are compensated for their labor in the paid labor force and versus mothers who stay at home. And that's certainly not what we're trying to do today. Totally. Definitely not. And it's so unfair. It's just another way to pit women's experiences against each other and sort of turn it into this unnecessary competition. I don't think it has to be that way at all. I, I love the way that you highlight that, Tiffany, in your, in your mom's own experiences and talking about that. Oh, absolutely. Because I, you know, we're, it's only one ecosystem and really in order for us to do what I would love us to do, which is get more women into the highest levels of leadership, we do need women who are really clear about the choices that they're making. And there's no way, to be honest, that I would be able to do what I do every day if it wasn't for the mothers who knew what was going on at my kid's school, who I was texting under the table asking them to go pick up my kid when they're picking up theirs because I'm stuck in a meeting. I mean, I I actually wouldn't be where I am without um, my non-paid working moms that are a part of my village. So that's part of the reason why I think the mommy wars are over and dead is because we all need each other. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an ecosystem. Just like you said, it's a village. It's all of these different kinds of women with all of these different kinds of backgrounds and experiences coming together for one shared goal. That's so beautiful. I would love to see that be the narrative of how we talk about these roles. Exactly. The ecosystem of women crushing it. Love it. <laughs> and and I think what you underscored, Tiffany, is that idea of women having choice in the matter, right? Because I think the way that our country works right now makes those choices for a lot of us feel pretty constrained. And so the whole concept of role overload, when we first started talking about this last week with Liz O'Donnell, there was some contrary evidence that we uncovered where people are saying, oh, you're feeling conflicted between the multiple roles you're playing women. Why don't you just not play that many roles? And I'm I'm curious because we're going to come back to your underlying message of drop the ball. But this message of, you know, women should stay at home or be forced into that kind of a role or women should be forced into, you know, seeking professional advancement and not having children those binaries seem so ludicrous to me because it's all about ha- making sure women actually have control, making sure women actually are able to make those choices and in less of a constrained way than they feel right now. And so actually one of the pieces of data that I wanted to highlight here is that in the Huffington Post, Lisa Belkin wrote in yet another study finds working moms are happier and healthier. She underscores that You know, Gallup found stay-at-home mothers were more likely to experience stress, worry, anger, and sadness than those who held paying jobs. A few days earlier, the British Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health reported that stay-at-home women were more likely to experience challenges with their health than those who juggled children and a steady relationship in a paycheck. In this particular instance, they actually found a correlation between obesity and staying at home. And so I guess the question boils down to, for me, what is the challenge that we're running up against with role conflict? Do you hear about these challenges for women? It sounds so much like what you were talking about in our previous iteration of this episode, how 
you know, you have a specific relationship with the people who are your clients, who you, who are paying for your services. But then when it comes to your parents, when you go home for Thanksgiving or for the holidays, you get a little stressed out. And I think this is the same kind of thing where when you're dealing with something that is your work, perhaps it's easier to be like, this is my job. I'm not personalizing it. I don't have the same kind of emotional investment as I do with managing all the different things that happen at home with your kids who you have a different, you know, emotional relationship with. Yeah. Is that what you're hearing from women, Tiffany? When you were on the journey of writing this book and compiling all of the research and all the women you worked with to make Drop the Ball a reality, what what were the kinds of challenges that you were hearing from women, both who work for pay and, and who work at home? Well, some of the challenges that I hear consistently are some of the ones that you're mentioning, largely that I'm stressed and that I'm overwhelmed because I have a lot of things on my plate. And I'm not sure how to prioritize all of the things that I've committed to. I'm not even sure if all the things I've committed to are all the things that I want to do, but I certainly am feeling the pressure. I would argue that we have less of a challenge around role conflict and more of a challenge around role definition. So most of us enter our lives fulfilling particular roles. If we're a woman, the first role is usually daughter. If we become a sibling, then a sister, certainly a friend, a student, at some point workers, we eventually, some of us become wives and mothers. And what I've discovered in connecting with so many women is that even though we're born in different parts of the world, to different families, different cultures, different values, somehow we've all ended up with very similar job descriptions for what it means to be a good anything. And if you are ambitious, then you by default put the word good in front of all of your roles. So it's not sufficient to be a mom. You want to be a good mom, not just a student. You want to be a good student. And the job description around what it means to be a good mother, because I know that's what we're focused on today, has a number of lines in it that are problematic and are unrealistic. For example, one of the lines in the good mom job description says that you need to be physically present when your child takes their first steps. I cannot tell you the number of women who I've sat across from who are really stressed because they have a work event that they need to travel for. And they know that as soon as that flight takes off, their child, who is about a year old, is going to start walking. And it will have meant that they were the worst mother on the planet. Now, this is despite the fact that there's not one woman who could tell me that she remembers who was there when she took her first steps. Uh, yet. This is apparently a really important momentous occasion in the life of a child that if you missed means you're really terrible. My drop the ball journey was more about me questioning why it is all of these things are on my job description to begin with and how I can get really clear about what matters most to me and what my highest and best use is in fulfilling them so that I can redefine what that job description is altogether. And when you have agency over what it means for you to be a good mom or what it means for you to be a good student or a good worker or any of the roles that you play, then you can curate your life in such a way that it is possible to be an extraordinary mother and a wonderful professional and an amazing wife and sister all at the same time. It's just that it's very difficult when we're living default mechanisms, default molds that tell us 
who we should be and what we should be. And so that's really, to me, at the heart of dropping the ball. It's dropping these unrealistic expectations about who we're supposed to be to begin with. Tiffany, I, I love that. So we're vigorously nodding our heads over here at what you have to say. I just have to say um, your anecdote about the kid taking a first steps reminds me so much. I have a friend who works in a daycare with very young children, and she has a young child herself. And the other daycare workers have this kind of coded way of talking to the moms who leave their kids there when their kids start walking. So if the mom comes, I'll say, is your kid uh, taking steps at home? And that's sort of a coded way of being like, your kid has taken its, his first steps. You weren't here for it, but it's not a big deal. Oh you don't need goodness. to make it, you know, a big thing because it happens so often. And if you frame it as, guess what you missed today? You missed your kid taking his first steps and you were at a business meeting, you horrible mom. Right. The mom, that's awful. And they've actually honed this way of talking about it in this coded term that says, hey, it's actually... It happens. It isn't that big of a deal. Just so you know, yeah. you know, your kid is taking steps here, but you, you're not a bad mom because you weren't here for it. That's beautiful. It really is. I'm, I was like tearing up over here as the mom of a four legged fur baby. <laughs> I'm like, I, I already have internalized the guilt that comes with this idea, this ambiguous sense of missing out. And that is so connected, I think, to what you were saying about role definition, because it is a very generalized kind of anxiety that 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 comes with role overload or role conflict. When you are unsure about what parts of being a good mom are important to you, it just leaves you feeling like you're constantly digging in quicksand. Tiffany, where do you think those roles come from? Do you think we internalize messages in society or we get handed these roles from sort of the women who came before us? Oh, all of it. And, and, and yeah. we get them from, you know, when we were growing up, whichever women we modeled ourselves after. I personally modeled a lot of my behavior after my mother, who remember, as I, you know, started off shared, um, didn't work outside of the home. She worked inside of the home. I should also add that she did not have a smartphone. She did not have email. <laughs> she did not have nearly a lot of the pressures. And yet I still expected my home to look as spotless as the home that I grew up in. And so we certainly get them from there. For me, I got them also for women in the church because I grew up in the church. We get them from popular culture. I grew up on the Cosby show, which basically might be Claire Huxtable, meaning that I was going to have perfectly feathered hair and perfect makeup. And my house was always going to be clean. And I would have five perfectly well-behaved children who were all college bound. And in the second season of my life, I would make partner at a law firm, mm. which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. But of course, as an adolescent growing up, I did have those visions. It comes from billboards telling us, you know, who we should be. Everyone can repeat, you know, the phrase, choosy moms, choose Jeff. Right. So we're constantly told, you know, who we should be and what we should be. And I think that that is an important part. Certainly it was a difficult part for me because I always thought of myself as being very ambitious very modern, very much in the change, uh, in the driver's seat of my own life. So to come to a point where it was very clear to me that what I thought were choices weren't actually choices. They were just default norms and expectations that I was living out, that literally I was living someone else's story was a pretty daunting, overwhelming and humbling realization. But it also gave me 
the agency and the power to learn how to write my own story and how to live that instead. Was there a moment for you where that became very clear or was it just an over a, a certain amount of time or was there a crystallizing time where you were like, man, I am I'm living someone else's version of what it means to be a good mom? Well, there were certainly moments when I felt so overwhelmed that I knew something had to change, that the status quo was not sufficient. One of those moments was my first day back after my first maternity leave. I left that day really excited about my new job. I felt that I was going to be this powerhouse, you know, working mommy that had it all and did it all. And I had negotiated for a place to pump milk at the office. So I I just thought everything was all set. But the day was such a whirlwind that I ended up going from meeting to meeting on that first day back and honestly forgetting to pump milk until my breasts were so engorged that milk was like seeping, you know, through my blouse into my jacket. And long story short, I ended up having to express milk into a toilet um, and just was on a bathroom floor on the first day back of my maternity leave, literally a hot milk and teary mess. And that day was just kind of a daunting day of realizing, wait a minute, if I can't think to do something as simple as pump milk for my baby. What are the other things now that are going to fall through the cracks? How am I going to manage all of this? And why isn't it that when my husband went on his first day back after we had, you know, after he also had had a child, that he didn't have the same kind of pressure. So I had a lot of pressure points and a lot of feelings of overwhelm that caused me to come to a place where I realized I'm going to have to do something about this. And it's like my parents taught me, if you want something that you've never had before, you're going to have to do something that you've never done before in order to achieve it or accomplish it. So what am I going to do that's different Mm. in order to really manage? this stress. That is so real. I know. I'm like, I'm like, you must have just caught me on a very stressed out day because I'm like so identifying with the, that feeling of, oh man, this is too much. This is not going to work. And that, you know, something has got to give, like something, this can't go on forever. Something has got to change for this to work. It's not sustainable. But it's so easy to internalize that as a personal failure. Right. Instead of to externalize it and say, okay, what do I need to do differently? Which is how you just framed it, Tiffany, which is already relieving me. Totally. Because it's not you. It's like, okay, what am I going to do? And I think to your point about having it be an external thing, just like Tiffany was saying, this idea that we get these signals of what it looks like to be crushing it, whether it's from our own mom, from the church, from, you know, moms on TV, whatever it is, and that we need to understand that no one can do that. This is That's not always realistic or attainable, and that if we hold ourselves up to this this standard, we're setting ourselves up for failure and overwork and burnout and role conflict and all of that. Yeah. And I I wonder if it the burden is extra for women of color. You mentioned the Cosby show, which I think was such an illuminating moment of in pop culture of the new black elite almost, right? Like black excellence on the small screen, which inspired a lot of Americans. And I wonder if that uh extra pressure of having to prove a stereotype wrong or to live up to uh, high expectations and, and show that you can, you know, be twice as good in this world, even if the world won't always appreciate you and it isn't a fair and just and perfectly equitable place. Do you feel like 
for working moms of color in particular, Tiffany, that this is an added burden? Well, I would say that for me, it was um, for a couple of different reasons. One is that I was racially socialized, meaning that my parents did not pretend or believe in a colorblind world. They told me that I was black. They told me that because I was black, people were going to perceive me in a certain way. They did tell me that I would have to work really hard in order to overcome those perceptions. They made it very clear that those perceptions weren't true. They told me every day that I was smart and that I was beautiful and that I was loved. But my consciousness around my racial identity did um, serve as motivation in that, you know, I felt an enormous sense of responsibility because I saw myself in this context of history and people who had come before me. So there's a sense of gratitude, but there's also a sense of if I mess up, it's going to be a ding on the entire black race. And that might seem a bit dramatic, but that's actually how I felt um, mm. and in some ways still feel about failure. And so, yes, there's this added pressure to do well and to be well and to perform because one, there are a lot of people who are depending on you, but also because you represent something that that means a lot. So being communally minded does have its added pressures. And I imagine that there are other cultures in that, that also have that experience. I could not identify with that more as a black woman. You know, I watched my mom and my dad's mom and my aunt's all be these strong black women who I feel like often felt like they had to carry on these intense burdens, mostly silently, that as black women, there's this stereotype that you have to be superwoman and do it all. They've actually done academic research on this. We found a study from uh, University of North Carolina that actually indicates that black women have more physical symptoms of stress associated with this idea of being superwoman, that they have to carry all these mental and emotional and sometimes physical burdens and not really talk about it. And they feel like we can't actually, you know, drop the ball. We don't we don't feel like we necessarily have that ability. And we are suffering a lot of times because no one can be superwoman all the time, even if you're my mom who seems like she can do everything and, you know, never drop the ball ever. No one can do it yeah. all the time. And I think this idea that as people of color, we often do feel like we have this added burden of being perfect and killing it all the time because we have to make up for the fact that our ancestors before us worked so hard and didn't have the advantages that we have. And it's just it's just a lot. It is a lot. And I think it's really important that we allow young women, particularly young women of color, to see us as human. I had an experience months ago. I had signed my daughter up. She's eight years old for a girls leadership program. And one of the things that I love about girls leadership is that it requires that a caregiver, ideally a parent, attend the program with them. And so during one of the sessions, my daughter overheard me share in one of the groups that I had once felt really sad because I had been left out of a friendship group. And later she asked me about it because she was surprised that I had ever felt sad for being left out of a friendship group. And I said, and she asked me if it had happened when I was a little girl. And I said, no, honey, it actually happened recently that I felt sad that I was left out of a group. And she said, well, I just don't believe you. And I said, well, why don't you believe me? And she says, mommy, when I'm left out of a friendship group, I feel so sad that it makes me cry. She says, but I've never seen you cry ever. 
And it really took me back, you know, by surprise, because certainly in the past eight years, I have cried on more (laughs) than one occasion. But I realized in her communicating that, that my children had never seen me cry. And I think it's because if I felt tears coming on, I would likely excuse myself from being in the room with them to go into another room to cry. Maybe I would prefer to protect them from whatever was happening in my adult life or world so that they wouldn't have to worry. But I recognized in that moment that I was doing my daughter a disservice, that if my daughter didn't see in real practical terms that mommy also struggles, that mommy has a bad, has a hard time, that mommy cries, that she would likely grow up with the same sense that you're talking about, that she's got a mommy who has it all and does it all Mm. and is perfect. And that one day this child is going to need my book. Drop the ball. Yes. Yes, That's so real. Uh, I mean, this, I, I probably have never seen my mom cry. I've never, my mom has never illustrated anything other than unflappable poise and has only ever demonstrated like crushing it and killing it. And I I don't think I've ever seen my own mom cry. Well, isn't there sort of this trope around Watching, like, seeing your own mother cry makes people freak out, right? Like, no, mom, like, don't cry, mom. What's the matter, mom? Everyone wants to, like, instantly have this really panicked freak out over it. And we actually at Bossed Up came up with a norm at our in-person programs, which we call Talk Through the Tears, which is to say we've been so socialized, especially as women, although I would say as men, even more so, to stop talking and work on suppressing your own tears if, God forbid, you should tear up in public. And that has taught us, trained us to excuse ourselves, to apologize. I'm so sorry. I need a minute. I can't believe I'm being so emotional here, as I may or may not have already said once today, because I I had a very rough day of travel today as I cried in front of a couple TSA agents about not having the right boarding pass at the right time. And we all, we always say it bossed up, like talk through the tears. Like no one's going to make you apologize for crying. We want to see, we want to hear what you have to say. So don't let the onset of tears make you feel like you need to shut down and shut up. And it, it goes back to what you were just saying, Tiffany, which is allowing yourself to be seen as the flawed, imperfect, and sometimes hurt human being that we all can be can actually enable others to feel permission to do the same. I love that so much. Um, one of my favorite t- like reality TV characters, Kelly Catrone. You ever watched <laughs> The Hills? Yes. The name of her autobiography is called If You Have to Cry, Go Outside. Oh, no. Yeah. Wow. And it's like, I-, I remember thinking that like tough girls, girls who can really hack it, don't cry. you know, they don't cry. There's mm-hmm. no crying in baseball. Like that was something that I definitely internalized. So if I, if I were to cry, even to like a coworker that I'm close with, it would be all apologies. It would be, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're seeing this as if I was <laughs> doing something totally inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have to say today, my two lovely TSA agents who witnessed Emily Aries publicly crying in an airport were so kind in saying like, it's okay. You're having a bad day. Like, Airports are one go. of my favorite places to cry in yeah. public. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. Tiffany, hang on. We'll be right back. We are excited to continue this conversation with Tiffany Dufu, author of Drop the Ball. And when we come back, I want to break down what that really means, what it means to drop the ball. And we're back. Tiffany, we are so 
so fortunate to have you joining us on the podcast today. And I want to get into some of these solutions. So we talked about the the challenges that come with role overload, role conflict, or a total lack of role definition, which, as you said at the top of the podcast, can leave women especially and working mothers feeling this ambiguous sense of letting someone down or guilt or the stress that comes with that. So you've written an entire book about how to proactively prioritize, how to really define the roles for ourselves instead of becoming sort of victims to societal pressures and the roles we've internalized elsewhere. Can you tell us what it really means to drop the ball? Sure. I can tell you what it means for me. I mean, Drop the Ball is largely a memoir and a romantic comedy. Um, I respect women way too much to tell them what to do, but certainly <laughs> if my story can support women in their journey. I put it all out on the table. I think that the first step to dropping the ball is really getting clear about what matters most to us as opposed to what matters to other people. And in my drop the ball journey, it became very clear that what mattered most to me was advancing women and girls, surprise, surprise, um, really nurturing a healthy relationship with my partner, with my husband, and raising conscious global citizens. What matters most to you is usually the first question that I ask women when I connect with them. Most of the time, we start by rattling off areas of our life. So, oh, my career is important. My family is important. My dog's important. But what I really try to coach women toward is achieving clarity about what you hope to achieve in relationship to these areas of your life, because it's really that starting point that you need in order to do the second step, which is really getting clear about your highest and best use in achieving what matters most to you. So I used to be someone who was kind of obsessed with just making a bunch of lists, and I would have them organized via all kinds of different apps until I got to a point where it was clear to me that what you do is far less important than the different you make. So I had to move from constantly making lists and just trying to check them off to really figuring out. And when I talk about my highest and best use, what are the things that I can do really well with very little effort, probably because I've done them a lot, combined with what are the things that only I can do? So for example, as a mother, because that's what we're talking about here, one of the things that I do really well with very little effort is helping other people to achieve clarity through guidance and encouragement. Some people would say you just make a good coach. One of the things that only I can do in relationship to my kids is instill values in them. It's very hard to outsource the installation of values <laughs> in people. Yeah. I'm so my highest and best use in raising conscious global citizens is engaging my kids in meaningful conversations each and every day. What kind of day did you create for yourself today? Who did you laugh with today? If an alien spaceship came down and abducted someone from your school today, who would they have abducted? <laughs> Why would they have abducted that person? And in that way, I can help my kids develop a positive relationship with themselves, with their teachers, their peers, their community, hopefully the world. 
Now, does that mean that there wasn't some Halloween outfit I was supposed to have made, you know, for them or there wasn't something else that was due? Sure. But I know that I can drop the ball on any one of those things. Those are not on my good mom job description. Mm -hmm. And that I'm an extraordinary mother if no matter where I am in the world on my travels over Skype or FaceTime or Google Hangout, I have this meaningful conversation with my child. So and for every area of our lives, I think it's really important that we're really clear about what should we be doing so that when other people, because that's really the challenge, when other people impose their behaviors onto our values, you can say, actually, I know that from your perspective, me attending my daughter's piano lesson is something that I should be doing as a good mom, but I've actually decided that that behavior isn't on my job description. So I'm gonna I'm gonna engage in the meaningful conversations. And I think the third step to dropping the ball is really about how you engage other people in your leadership journey. You know, we often act as if our leadership journey is a solo endeavor, but really it's a team sport. And, you know, there are a lot of people in our lives who want us to create lives we're passionate about, who really do love us, but we often suck at (laughs) communicating effectively with them. And so I personally took a big page from my effectiveness as a communicator at work and started bringing some of those skills home in order to really meaningfully engage people in ways that I hadn't before. Oh, wow. Tiffany, I know I've been talking about my mom a lot. Maybe that's because I'm I'm not a parent myself. But something you just said just reminded me of this powerful thing from my, my childhood. So my mom, I think I've mentioned, total badass, doctor, I taught medicine while I was growing up, seemingly did it all. But we know that's not, you know, looks can be deceiving. But um, she was a working mom and she worked a lot. She she cared so much about her her job. When I was in school, I remember a lot of the kids always had these meticulously packed school lunches. And I would sit at lunchtime and they would open their lunchbox and it would be like crinkle cut carrots and just very lovingly like, oh, my mom put a note on my napkin every day and things like that. And I always had to buy hot lunch. And so people would be like, oh, you know, hot lunch, like your mom doesn't make your lunch. And I would be like, no, she doesn't. And I remember as a kid feeling like I was supposed to feel sad about that. But what my classmates didn't see is that almost every single day when I came home, my mom would make dinner and I would sit on the kitchen counter and like talk about my day with her. And she would just ask me questions about my day. And so for me, it was clear that for her, maybe she wasn't the kind of mom who could be cutting up carrots and writing notes on a on a napkin every day for lunch. But that for her, what was important for her kid was to make dinner and have that special time together, even if nobody else in the school saw that. And so even if my classmates thought like, oh, gee, your mom doesn't make you a meticulously packed lunch every day. What is she, a bad mom? My mom knew I can my my kid can buy a lunch and it's fine. What my kid can't do is have this special time with her mom. Right. Right. And I think that the operative word in your narrative is that it, it wasn't that she couldn't make you a lunch. It's that she chose not to make you a lunch because there were other things that she chose to do with her time that amounted to you being the fabulous person that you are now. Oh, you should see her face right now, (laughs) Tiffany. That was like just what I needed to hear. Yeah, you're like mothering us in real time on this podcast. Yeah, can can we have you call us every night and ask us those same questions you (laughs) asked your kids? The spaceship one in particular, I think would be a good question. Um, No, I I love that. And I I, that triggers some issues for me around class, to be quite honest, Bridget, because your example reminded me of how jealous I was 
of the kids who got to buy a hot lunch. What? Yeah. Oh, you kidding me? I I was the kid with the PB and J every day, and I took for granted the labor that went into my mother making my lunches or my lovely leadership training that was making my own damn lunch for most of my school years. And I just wonder, like, what does it look like to drop the ball when you don't have the financial resources to outsource or to pay for school lunch every day? You know, what What does it really mean in this world where, and we're going to dive into in a future episode about role overload, how our government could maybe make this a little easier on all of us. But what does it look like to drop the ball when you can't financially outsource stuff? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. And it's one of the biggest reasons why I began the drop the ball narrative in the book. Um, going back to a time in my own life um, and my family's life when we did not have the monetary resources to just outsource domestic labor. That's the band-aid that a lot of professional families engage in, but we couldn't do that. And that's part of the reason why I don't start this drop the ball narrative or even philosophy with you shouldn't do specifically this or you shouldn't do specifically that. I started with what's important to you and how can you really redefine what it means to be a good anything. Right. You know, I um, early in my career had a sitter who in her journey had to at one point leave her kids um, on an island and come to the U.S. as an immigrant on her own in the hopes of earning enough money to eventually send for her kids. So there was, you know, in the good mom job description, you know, there's this line around just being physically present. It's like this omnipotent, you know, pressure that if you're not physically there, you're not a good mom. Mm. And just in thinking about her story and her narrative, I mean, I don't think there's any Anyone who would say that a mother who's had to immigrant, you know, immigrate to the country and is doing the best that she can, earning money and sending it back home in the hopes of bringing her kids to the U.S. to lead a better life, that she's a terrible mother. In fact, we would say that she's probably a really good mother and making an enormous sacrifice, you know, for her kids. So, you know, I think that it's really important for us to have the flexibility and the power to be able to tell the stories that serve us as opposed to the stories that serve other people about who we are yeah. and about, you know, what what we can do. And quite frankly, a lot of the moms who I interact with who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, who are single moms, for example, have a lot less luxury to obsess over some of these issues. Yeah, um, that's and real. Often, like, you, you privileged women need to get over it and get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever, you know what I was thinking though, from our perspective, we're basically daughters here amusing on a podcast called Stuff Mom Never Told You, <laughs> talking about this issue. Do you ever worry that what you choose as being most important to you about your, your own job description as mom, someday your kids are going to be on a podcast saying, my mom chose the wrong thing. <laughs> you know, like no, it doesn't align no. with how do you navigate that? How no, do you feel? Absolutely not. You know, a few years ago, I was talking to my sister. I'm the oldest of four girls. And my sister that I was speaking to in this case is the one right under me. So we're only 17 months apart. Mm -hmm. And we were having a conversation about our mom. And I should share for the purposes of this story that we're estranged from our mom. I hate that word, mm -hmm. but it's the best word to describe our relationship with her. And my sister was really angry with our mom about something that she had done. And I don't know if you've ever been 
been in a conversation with someone who's upset or frustrated and they want to enroll you in their frustration or in their anger. Um, but I wasn't really going there the way that she needed me to. But because she's my sister, she knows how to push my buttons. And so she started saying things like, I don't know why you're not so angry with mom. You know, you're children don't even know their grandmother. She's never sent them a Christmas gift. She's never sent them a birthday gift. And because she's my sister, like I almost wanted to burst out in tears. Mm. But what I said to her was, Trinity, that's my little sister's name. I said, that's not the story that I tell about our mom. The story that I tell is that from the time she found out she was pregnant with me until I was 16 years old, she gave me everything a mother could possibly give a child in order to set her off on the right path. Every day she told me that I was smart and I was beautiful and that I was loved. And as a result of that early conditioning, I feel that I'm a confident, empowered woman. And I feel that the greatest gift that she gives her grandchildren is having a mom who understands why she's on the planet and has a very clear passion and purpose. And that that's my story. And my sister, of course, goes, oh my God, you're so Pollyannish. But my, <laughs> my Tiffany's epiphany about that moment had then to do with my own children. Because it occurred to me that here, my sister and I are two adult women who had virtually the same childhood experience. I mean, our mom, like, made us the same fried chicken and collard greens on Sunday. She cornrowed our hair in the same direction. Maybe there were different colored beads, but it was the same church dress. And yet, as adult women, we have two very different stories that we tell. Mm. And that is likely to be the future with my children. My son could very well grow up to say, I am a feminist man. I have this amazing, incredible wife who, you know, lived as her passion and her purpose because my mom was this amazing leader who really cared about making a difference in the world. And she was such a great role model for me. My daughter could grow up and say, I have a lot of difficult times with, with relationships because my mother's life's work was advancing women and girls, but I was the one little girl she never paid enough attention to. She was writing books. She was always on planes and trains and automobiles, really living her passion and her purpose, but not really spending time with me and finding out what my passion and purpose was. And so now I have a difficult time because my mother, you know, didn't spend enough time with me. She always talked about how her mother cornrowed her hair. My mom didn't even know how to cornrow. She sent me to the soul. Okay. Now, both of those stories that my children might tell would be true. Neither one of those stories would have anything to do with me. Okay. I don't have control over my children's future stories. More importantly, I don't have a right to them. Yeah. And so, no, I'm not concerned that the choices or the decisions that I'm making now are going to impact my children's future stories because right now in this moment, every single day, I'm just doing the best I can. And you want to know something? I've never met a woman who wasn't doing the best that she could every single day to do right by herself, her family and her community. I think that's so perfect, right? This idea of stories, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, the stories that we tell ourselves about others and how how they can both sort of be true, but this version that we choose to tell ourselves, that's what really can have a lot of power. I think what what you just said too is is that you have to be okay with your choices. And that's probably what's going to set your kids up for their best potential anyway. Like if you as a mother are making conscious choices that you are happy with and are living up to the role that you've defined for yourself. You're setting a role. You're setting an example 
for your kids to do the same, which I think is a really powerful way of thinking about not conforming to what you think someone else wants you to be in real time. Easier said than done, I might add. Absolutely. We're going to go to a quick break for a quick word from our sponsors, but let's keep this conversation going with Tiffany Dufu, author of Drop the Ball, after this quick break. And we're back, and Bridget and I are nodding along here to the the gospel of Tiffany Dufu, who is laying it down for us when it comes to being a working mother in today's world and living up to the job description that you decide for what that role really means to you. Thanks so much for joining us, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. So Tiffany, something that I've kind of pulled out of a few of the narratives that you've shared with us today is this idea of making the right choices for yourself and not sort of falling in line with how society or pop culture or whatever tells us we have to be as moms, as women. So my question is, do you ever deal with other parents or other people in your orbit giving you, you know, questioning these choices or giving you shade or attitude saying, oh, well, you didn't think it was important to come to your your daughter's piano recital because you thought it was more important to do blah, blah, blah. How can parents out there deal with it when other parents judge them for these choices that you're saying that we should all really be making for ourselves? Yes. So do I experience this? Sure, I experience this. Sometimes it's in very subtle ways that are really unintentional, that are just um evidence or just evidence of a society that isn't quite evolved. So for example, my one of the things that I've delegated with joy to my husband is the management of my kids' social calendar. This is a task that often falls to women, but that I've discovered should actually be managed by the person who is the social butterfly in the relationship. <laughs> and my husband does a great job. The challenge though is that People don't engage fathers, they engage mothers with kids and their social calendars. For example, no one ever sends a birthday party invitation to a child's father. They always send it to the mom. And for me, that is just a subtle reminder that in the global, in the large, you know, in the world, I'm the one who's expected to be doing this task. So sometimes I commit what I would call a little tiny act of defiance, which is to forward the invitation back to the person and to say something like, thank you so much for inviting my daughter to the birthday party. Her father is our calendar maven. Can you please email him at, and then I give his email address. That is so baller. First of all, what a power move. (laughs) Then not, you will give other women permission as in, oh my God, I can't believe, like, why did I only send it to the moms? Why am I even planning the birthday party? Like, how do you get them to do that, right? So you can be disruptive in that way. Sometimes the pressure is more overt. Um, you know, someone will literally say, oh, you know, all of the other moms are, you know, doing X, Y, or Z. Sometimes even my children will say, well, you know, mom, all of the other moms are doing X, Y, or Z. And at any point in time, I might respond because I'm human, depending upon the situation. Sometimes I become really defensive, to be yeah, honest. And yeah. I might say, well, is every mom trying to make a difference in the world for women and girls? You know, <laughs> sometimes I might respond with humor, you know, and I'll say to my kids, I saw you showing your friends my YouTube channel. Don't try to pretend like I am not the coolest mom at your school. <laughs> um, I love but, that. Um, I think that the the biggest difference for me is that 
once you drop the ball, meaning once you release these unrealistic expectations of doing it all, once you love yourself as imperfect, once you stop judging yourself, it's nearly impossible to judge other people. Mm. So most of the time, especially if it's a person who is a stranger to me or someone who I don't know very well, when they impose their expectations, like when my daughter's piano teacher tells me that I should come to her piano lessons because the other mothers do, I usually feel an enormous amount of empathy for them. Because what I'm clear of is that they're still operating according to that job description that they were handed. Right. And I know that they haven't gone through an intentional process, usually of really, really getting clear about what matters most to them, but of what could potentially matter for other people. And so I usually am just really gracious and I smile and I don't say anything unless I'm kind of forced to say something. And then I might explain, well, you know, I'm working during the day to pay for the piano lesson. So that's why I'm not able to come. But I sometimes I even try to avoid that. And I just nod and I smile because not everyone's ready for the revolution. <laughs> I, I I love those examples, but they also infuriate me, right? Because they're so exclusionary and patronizing, frankly, to men and fathers, and not to mention same sex couples who might not have a mom at home. So when that mm-hmm. that that lingo of all the other moms, I just want to I want that to go away. <laughs> I'd love yes. for all the other moms as a phrase to just retire with shoulder pads, perhaps. You know what I mean? Yes. It's just like. It's so passe. And, and if we really want to empower all human beings, period, to reach our full potential and lead happy lives at home and at work, we have to get out of those conditions, which in a, a very small example was I just made the big adulting move of getting a membership at a, one of those big box retailers like Costco. <laughs> and the person who I was getting this membership with, it was me and my partner, she could not fathom that he was going to be the primary account holder. She was like, it should be the person who's going to do the majority of the shopping here more often. And because I'm on the road all the time and because I'm not really into grocery shopping at big box stores, that was Brad. That was Brad the Boo's role. And she was just like, are you sure? Like she almost didn't, couldn't believe what I was suggesting about wow. how we divide up work. That's so aggressive. <laughs> Well, Tiffany, something that you mentioned is that your husband really does a lot of the social calendaring for your child. I'm curious if you're comfortable sort of talking a bit about what does your romantic relationship look like? How how are the roles sort of divvied up and how does that how does that look like in your household? Well, we implemented a tool many years ago that we call a MEL. It's a management Excel list. We call it MEL for short. And it's kind of like a third person in our marriage. (laughs) So every once in a while, when balls literally do drop, we'll say, oh, we need to have a conversation with Mel. And I'm like, oh, no, you need to have a conversation with Mel. Um, And But our MEL is really important. It's basically an Excel spreadsheet that lists everything that's necessary in order for our home to function smoothly. And I mean, every little thing from people getting haircuts to the car being maintenance, to our taxes, to beds being made, to laundry being done, grocery shopping, our Costco big box, you know, trip that we make um, every couple of weeks or so to watering the plants. And there are basically columns uh, next to each one. And my husband's got a column. I've got a column. Now each one of our kids has a column. And what we do is we put X's 
underneath people's names in order to kind of decide who should do what. And it's a really incredible list for a couple of reasons. One is that it's very obvious that even with two adults and four children living in a home and a number of exes underneath people's names, that you still couldn't possibly do everything required in order for your home to function as smoothly as you would like it to be inside of your mind. Mm. And so it really gives all of us permission to just say, you know what, some things are not going to get done. And the most important column on the sheet is the no one column. It's where we put an X next to what we all agree no one's going to do. So the car is just going to be dirty for three months. We're not going to actually fold the clothes. We're just going to pull clean socks out of the lawn bin, And it allows us to not develop a sense of resentment because things aren't happening. But the other reason why that Excel list and also that no one column has become very important for us is because when we do reach points of overwhelm, there have been times, for example, when my husband's traveled for long periods of time in other parts of the world and a neighbor or a friend or a community member says, hey, do you need help with anything? We always have our no one column to look at to say, oh my gosh, our car is really dirty. Do you think you could take it to get it washed? Or I haven't really had time to do a Costco run. Would you mind doing that for me? Or you know, I, it would really be helpful if like someone came and folded a load of laundry because we actually are kind of tired of just pulling the socks, you know, out of the laundry bin. And because we have specific tasks that we can assign to people, it's allowed us to build a really robust village of support. And it's extended our ecosystem. It turns out people want to help. And when you actually give them something specific to do, it just encourages them to help you even more. So there are lots of things about our relationships and the, and the dynamic of our relationship and our friendship and where it all began. But I think the most important tool for us has been the mouth. I love that. I mean, listen, when my dad was in the hospital, all my friends were like, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? But that's almost another task. And so if you're overwhelmed, someone being like, I want to help you, what can what can I do to help? That's almost, like if you're overwhelmed, you can't even like think to be like, oh, I need the towels folded or I need someone to make dinner or whatever. And so having that system, it takes the emotional labor off of the person who's in need. Exactly. Exactly. And really allow like people do want to help and it makes it easier for you to help people help you and have that ecosystem function efficiently. It really reminds me of what you mentioned briefly earlier on in the episode, Tiffany, which was the experience of single mothers, especially like, first of all, nobody exists in without community. Nope especially as parents, like the community that you create through your children's lives and through the social uh, structures that you begin to partake in as a parent or just as an active member of a, a community, it seems so critically important, especially for those who don't have a partner while they're, while they're raising children, right? Like it's just a reminder that none of us have to go it alone. And I, I, I wish we could see more of that Instead of this tired old baloney narrative around the mommy wars, like I wish we could see more of a communal narrative. And I think we are seeing more community structures emerging, especially as millennials try to figure out this parenting thing. And millennials are wading into those waters of what does it look like to be a member of a household nowadays? Do you feel like you've seen that sort of communal approach as being instrumental in your life? 
Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't be here without it. I mean, I'm literally the cumulative investment of a lot of other people. And that starts from culture. So, you know, it's one of the benefits of growing up in the black community is I had multiple caregivers. I had multiple people who could tell me what to do. Um, and at that time could even want my behind, which I know we don't do anymore. <laughs> um, who could hold me accountable? That's a nicer way of putting it. <laughs> And I loved that so reframing I, of, of spankings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I certainly have this ethos in my mind and in my heart that children should be raised by villages. And I hope that as opposed to driving my kids crazy, which they in the future could say that it did, I hope <laughs> that it actually has allowed them to be exposed to different points of view, different lenses, different perspectives. Because even in our own home, we have this philosophy that when in Rome, you do as the Romans do. So, you know, when the kids are with me, for example, there is dancing on the sofa. You know, no one has to really eat all of their food. They just only have that one opportunity to eat. Whereas, you know, and there's like no ball throwing. But when they're with their dad, they like throw balls all the time. There's no dancing on the furniture and they have to eat all of their food. And my kids know when I'm with mom, this is how it is. When I'm with dad, this is how it is. And I just, I feel like we need more people in the world who can adapt and who can be flexible to different environments and different experiences. So I hope that, you know, we're exposing our kids through all of the people that are in their village to different ways of thinking and that we're increasing their sensitivity around diversity. But, you know, I think that you're right. It's harder, certainly, when you have less people at your disposal. But I, I think that it's really important for us to also keep in mind the narratives that we tell ourselves in order to potentially access things that we didn't think were there before. I mean, if you had a suggested to me 10 years ago that part of the key to me excelling professionally and living a life that I'm passionate about and not being overwhelmed and stressed every day was my husband doing some things around the house. I had a strong enough marriage that I would have said to you, oh, I think that's a great idea. I mean, he's just so amazing. But in my head, I would have been thinking, oh, my gosh, these young girls, they are clearly not married. Otherwise, they would know that husbands are useless. <laughs> that that is just a terrible idea and that's never going to work. So even though I've had a husband, right, that you would think, oh, well, because she's married, she has it easier. In my own mind, in my own narrative, he was not a resource for me. Mm -hmm. And I think getting creative about who we have access to and who our resources are is really important. And one of the great examples of that to me was a couple of women that I interviewed for Drop the Ball who were single moms. They were both divorced. They both had sons that were about the same age. And they decided to become all-in partners by moving in together. And they shared household expenses. They collaborated on child care. And one of the funniest quips was that when either one of them would go out on a date, the one would say to the other, okay, have fun, girl, but don't go crazy and marry him. Um, <laughs> don't replace me. <laughs> You know, yeah. because they had this this really great. So I, I just thought it was a really creative way um, and a really meaningful way of them finding a resource and finding partnership in one another. Tiffany, this has been such a fascinating conversation and really like a almost like a personally clarifying conversation, if I can be honest with yeah. you. Where can our listeners find out more about what you're up to and where can they access all your different toolkits that are out there? 
Oh, they can go to tiffanydufu.com. And thank you so much for your support and for having me. Absolutely. I mean, you are the coolest mom on YouTube in the block, right? <laughs> yeah, Tiffany, if your kids are listening to this, yeah. I hope you know your mom is a cool mom. Yeah. She's not a regular mom. Yeah. She's a cool mom. She's got Tiffany's epiphanies. You got to check them out. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you so much. I know our listeners are going to have a million follow-up questions for you. And so, listeners, Sminty listeners, we really want to hear from you. Let's keep this conversation going. Hit us up on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Ask your questions about working motherhood, role overload, and how you define what it means to be a good mom on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And as always, we love getting your emails at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Thanks so much again for joining us, Tiffany, and we can't wait to keep this conversation going. 